us pray. Father, we ask that we would come to know You even more than we do. That You would open Your Word to us by Your supernatural help so that we could see things that we couldn't see, that we would have ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to believe, a mind to receive, and feet to obey. Help us, Lord. Show us Christ. And may we respond to what we see. In Jesus' name, amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Once again, we're going to read through verse 7, but we'll be focusing on verses 3 and 4. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Concerning His Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus said in Matthew 16, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Or the King James Version, Who do men say that I am? They said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? How would you answer this question? Who do you say that Jesus is? That's what this sermon is about. Uh, I've called it Jesus Christ, the Son of David, and the Son of God. This is no light matter. Answering this question is important. Why? Why does it matter how we answer the question of who Jesus is? What does the Scripture say in this very chapter? That the Gospel is the power of God unto salvation. For everyone who believes, Jew first, also the Greek. There's no other way to be saved except through the gospel. There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved apart from the name of Jesus Christ. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of who? Christ, the word of God. Jesus said, unless you believe that I am he, what will happen to you? You will die. Yeah, you'll perish. You will die in your sins. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Paul says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. What, what, what am I saying here? 
The gospel is all about Jesus. We talked about that last time. And if the gospel is the only way for you to be saved, and the gospel is all about Christ, and if you have the wrong Christ, then you don't have the gospel. And if you don't have the gospel, then you don't have salvation. If you don't have salvation, then you will perish. You see why it's important? Paul said in Galatians 1, 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. There are other gospels out there. Have you heard them? Maybe you at one time believed a different gospel. Not that there is another one, not really, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. That's happening to this day, at this very hour, all over this city. The gospel of Christ is being distorted. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Let him be condemned. Let him go to hell. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary, different to the one you received, let him be accursed. And if you don't obey the gospel, 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 says, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. The gospel is the only way to be saved. The gospel is all about Christ. And if you don't have the right Christ, then you don't have the right gospel. And if you don't have the right gospel, you don't have salvation. Do you have the right one? Do you have the biblical one? Is it possible that you think you know who He is, but you're mistaken? Is it, is it possible that you have ideas about Jesus, thoughts about Jesus, even opinions about Jesus, and yet they're wrong? They're not based upon Scripture. Do you know who Jesus is? Paul, in just a few verses, just two verses, he presents the true Christ to the Romans. He explains who Jesus of Nazareth is is. He explains who the Son of God is. He explains who the Christ is. And then he even calls us to respond to it in two verses. We see the humanity of Jesus. You see that there. Who descended from David according to the flesh. We see the divinity, the deity of Christ. The Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness. And we see that He is both God and man in the title Christ, the Messiah, the Chosen One. This is a truly amazing two verses, so let's dive in. Verse 3, concerning His Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. So what does this tell us right at the front? I mean, what are we immediately confronted with by this verse? God did not choose a man or an angel to be His chosen one. He did it Himself. 
Where do I get that from? Descended from David according to the flesh. Remember, concerning his son. So this is the son of God who descended from David according to the flesh. Now, does God have flesh? Does God descend from anyone or anything? He is the origin, the source of all. God doesn't descend. Only human beings descend from ancestors. This verse is telling us plainly that God chose to become a man. Think, think about how God has done things in the past. God chose Abel. God chose Seth. God chose Noah. The children heard about that this morning. When God wanted a father of the faith, He chose Abraham. He didn't send uh, an angel. He didn't create a man like Adam, fully grown, and say, okay, you're going to be this father of the faith. No, He chose Adam. Or rather, uh, Abraham. When God wanted a king, what did He do? He sent His prophet to the home of Jesse to select and anoint David. This is what God has done. He has chosen. And when you look in your Bible, you find the same thing. You see God choosing sinful men, sinful women to accomplish His tasks. You also see God choosing angels to accomplish His tasks all over the Bible. But when it came time for the Messiah to come, God did not do that. He did not choose a prophet. He didn't choose a priest. He didn't choose a king. He didn't choose an angel or an archangel. No cherubim or seraphim would do. What did he do? Well, again, we see it right here. God chose to become man, to be the Messiah himself. As Piper said it, God did not choose a man to make him his son. He chose to make his eternal one and only son a man. Why? Why didn't God just choose a David or choose a Noah or choose an Abraham or, or, or someone else? Remember what it says in Isaiah 59? This is verse 15 through 17. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw, get this, that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. This is what God did. God looked around. There was no man to intercede. There was no one to save. There was no one to fix the problem. So what does God do? His own arm brings him salvation. He clothes himself. He drapes himself with the garments, with the righteous robes. He solves the issue himself. Many kings and rulers throughout history would sit back on their throne and what would they do? They'd send their armies to go fight their battles while they sat comfortably in the palace. But that's not what Christ did. God got off of the throne and as we sang, entered into darkness, came into this world with flesh. He didn't send the cavalry. He became a man and went to Calvary. The son was descended from David, which means he became a man. But the question is why? Why does God take on flesh? And what does this have to do with David? Because the prophets foretold that the Messiah, the Christ, was going to come through the line of David. And who was David? Well, you know, David, David and Goliath, right? He's the, he's the king, uh, the greatest king that Israel has ever known. 
I think Josiah is neck and neck with him, but you get the point. David was the man. He has a man. He was a man after God's own heart. He was anointed to be king. God loved him. He loved God. He ruled righteously. He ruled with mercy. He was he was amazing. Not perfect. But God chose him to be the one who his son would come through. Jesus is said to have come from that royal lineage. That's what Paul is saying here. Jesus is said to have been a descendant of David, but was he really? I mean, how do you know that Jesus really is related to David? Where would you go to prove that he was? Because if Jesus is not from the line of David, then he is disqualified from being the Messiah. This is extremely important. Where do I get this from? Well, a few verses out of the dozens and dozens of prophecies directly connecting the Messiah to David. Here are three. Psalm 89, 3, you have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Psalm 132, 11, the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body, I will set on your throne. In Jeremiah thirty-three seventeen, for thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. All of these verses are talking about the Messiah. They're talking about the chosen one. And what's the requirement? They have to come from the body of David. They have to come through the lineage. There has to be an ancestry. There has to be relation. Is Jesus truly related to David? It's mandatory. If Jesus is not from David, then he's not the Christ. What would you say if someone said, Michael Jordan is my uncle, or Queen Elizabeth is my grandmother? I mean, would you just say, okay, probably not, right? What would you do? You would say, prove it, right? Prove it. Show me some evidence. Show me some proof. Let me see a DNA ancestry something. Well, why? You wouldn't just accept that. You'd be asking them to provide evidence. What if someone showed up to your home and said, hey, I'm your long lost uncle. I'm your long lost cousin. You would not say, welcome to the family. You'd say, oh, that's nice. Show me. Prove it. Well, that's a celebrity. That's a family member. We're talking about the Messiah. We're talking about the Christ. Paul is saying David descended, uh, rather Jesus descended from David. He is the Christ. So we have to say, prove it. Isn't that what the Bereans did? They were more noble because they went back to the Old Testament where Paul was preaching that Jesus truly was the Christ. They went back to the Old Testament and said, "Okay, we want to see if what you're saying about this man is true. They were convinced. Well, where would you go? What would you see? How many of you have ever read the Old Testament? Now. If you're anything like me, or like most Christians, you start, right? Beginning of the year, Genesis. Boom, you're going good. Genesis is good. Exodus, okay, we're good, right? Um, what's the next? Genesis, Leviticus. Uh, numbers. 
And you start to slow down some, maybe. Maybe you get all the way to Chronicles. But something about the names, something about the genealogies, it's just not as exciting as David and Goliath, right? It's just not as exciting as rocks falling from the heavens and God speaking. And There's something about the genealogy that feels very robotic or just uninteresting. But, brothers and sisters, those passages, while you may groan to read them and they may not bring about the most excitement, are absolutely critical and essential. The Spirit of God includes them because that is how we find out who is truly the Christ through the genealogies. And when you look in the New Testament, Matthew, how does he start? Here's how it starts. Matthew 1.1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew traces the lineage of Jesus all the way from Abraham to Joseph. Not Joseph in Egypt, Joseph and Mary. That Joseph. Now why do we think, why do you think that Matthew did that? Why would he start with the genealogy? Because Matthew, his target audience were Jews. And you wouldn't even dare to begin to talk about any of the claims of Christ being Messiah without first establishing he's connected to David. You have to start there in order to be able to go any further. That's what he does. You get to verse 15. Uh, Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph. And notice how the language changes. Jacob, the father of Joseph, so if you didn't know what Joseph's father's name was, it was Jacob, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. Now that's different, right? We've been getting the father of, the father of, the father of, but when you get to Jesus, it's Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. Was, Je- was Joseph actually the father of Jesus? No, <laughs> right? Did the genes that were in Joseph pass to Jesus? No, we know that for a fact. So here's the problem. How can he claim to be David's son? How could he claim the lineage of David If Joseph is related to David, but Joseph is not actually his father. See, we got a problem. We got a problem that has to be solved here. The anti-Christian organization entitled Jews for Judaism. You've heard of Jews for Jesus. Well, they got Jews for Judaism. They've come up with a number of videos, articles and books of why Jesus is not the Messiah. And guess what their number one reason is? I quote, reason one, the Messiah must be from the tribe of Judah and a descendant of King David. Jesus did not qualify. The Messiah must be a member of the tribe of Judah, a direct descendant of King David. Genealogy in the Bible is only passed down from father to son. That's in Numbers 1, 1 through 18. There is no evidence that Jesus really had this pedigree, and the Christian Bible actually claims that he did not have a birth father from the tribe of Judah descending from King David and King Solomon, because Joseph was not his actual father. In one sense, we have to say, yeah, that's right. (laughs) 
Joseph was not his real father. And if the lineage of David comes from the father, and it does, and Joseph is not really Jesus' father, and he's not, then how is Jesus truly the Christ? Even Matthew is careful to word it. Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. Matthew records the ancestry of Joseph as the father of Jesus in an adoptive way. Not as physical father, but adopted. Does that count? I mean, is that acceptable? Uh, The question you have to ask is, does the Bible say so? Can we think of any examples of where that type of thing has happened and it has been counted? I got one for you. How about the 12 tribes of Israel, for example? Anybody know them all? I, I, won't, I won't put you on the spot. Well, the 12 tribes were named after who? They were named after the sons of Israel, right? And each tribe was named after a different son. And those sons had children and children's children. And that's how you've got the tribe of Judah, the tribe of uh, uh, Manasseh, the tribe of Ephraim and Asher and Gad, and on and on you go. But there's something that you may not have noticed before. Jacob had a favorite son. Who was that? Yeah, he made a coat for him, right? Joseph had two sons. Genesis 41, 51. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, or Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Now, what stands out to you about Manasseh and Ephraim? They're part of the tribes. I mean, book of Revelation, you find the, the, the tribe of Manasseh. So how can they be born to Joseph, but called sons to Jacob? Genesis 48, 5. And now your two sons. Here's Jacob, renamed Israel by God, talking to his son. Now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. Reuben and Simeon were born to him from women. Just as those sons are mine, these sons are mine. Your sons are mine. And and get what he says after this. The children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. So these sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, who were not by birth the sons of Jacob, by adoption were. So much so that they were included in the blessing and the inheritance. Genesis 48, 20. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Then he put Ephraim before Manasseh. This is the exact same thing that we see Joseph and Jesus. There's adoption being taken in, and it's counted as though that child came from the loins of the father. It's in the very tribes. So we have warrant. Through Joseph, Jesus, through adoption, is connected to David. But there's more. We get another genealogy in the New Testament. What book? 
What gospel? It's not Matthew. You got what? Three other options? It's Luke. Yeah. Luke. Here's what Luke says. Luke 3:23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son as was supposed of Joseph, the son of Heli. Uh-oh, wait a minute. What was pop quiz? What was Joseph's father's name? Joseph's father's name was Jacob. So who's this Heli? Who's that? Does he have two fathers? What, what, what does this mean? Explain in a second. The son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph. So Jesus, as was supposed to be the son of Joseph, who was the son of Heli. And Luke takes his genealogy beyond Abraham. He goes all the way back to Adam. Luke 3, 34, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, on and on, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahaliel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Luke shows the genealogy of Mary. Matthew shows the genealogy of Joseph. Luke shows the genealogy of Mary. Heli was Mary's father. Heli was the father-in-law of Joseph. So here was what we have. We have an ironclad claim to Messiahship. How? First, through uh, the lineage of through not only David, but Men. Solomon. Jesus has the claim to the royal throne. Naturally, because Jesus was born of Mary, he was in, put there by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. He was truly born, had her blood in his veins. She comes from the line of David through his son, Nathan. Luke 3.31, the son of Melah, the son of Mena, the son of Mathah, the son of Nathan, the son of David. Joseph comes through the line of Solomon. Mary comes through the line of Nathan, both of them through the line of David. Here is Christ, proven, ironclad, without any debate. Jesus has the right to be called the son of David. And he had to be adopted. He couldn't come through a natural father. Why? Two reasons. One, not only would he have gotten Joseph's eye color and hair color and maybe size, facial features, but what else is passed from father to son according to Romans chapter 5? Sin. Sin. The nature of sin. Jesus could not have taken the nature of sin. Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Adam, as our federal head, passes the nature of sin down to every child who is born of man. Sons of Adam, C.S. Lewis would say. But Jesus was not born of man. Secondly, what was the prophecy in Genesis 3.15? The seed of the man? The woman. Biology question. <laughs> Do women have seeds? Nope, 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 nope. Children, time will come when your parents will explain that. <laughs> Women don't have seeds. Women have eggs. 
So how is it possible for the seed of the woman to be the one to crush the head? That means even back in Genesis, the prophecy was saying the Messiah was going to come through a supernatural birth. He wasn't going to have a natural father. He was going to have a supernatural father. He was going to come through a woman, but not from a man. It was necessary that Jesus was adopted. So, we can conclude that Jesus is both the creator of David and the son of David. As he himself said in Revelation twenty-two sixteen, 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. I'm the origin of David. I made him. And I'm his descendant, his son, and his Lord. But so what? I mean, if, if all we're saying is that Jesus was related to David, so are a lot of people. I mean, to be frank, if all it takes to be the Messiah is that you were related to David, Mary's father and Joseph's father could have signed up and said, hey, I'm Messiah too. There has to be more. This is essential, but it's not isolated. There's more that has to come to play in order for Jesus to be able to truly be Christ, the son of David. He had to fulfill prophecy regarding the Messiah. The one who was foretold to come had to do much more than just be born, just be related to David. He had to accomplish much more than just having the right ancestors. Second Samuel seven eleven. Here is the, the promise to David. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The one that's coming has to be from the body, but he's going to do things that no mere man can do. He's going to rule over a kingdom. How long? Forever. Whoever this Messiah is has to be able not only to say I'm related to David, but I have the ability to reign forever. That's not something that Joseph's father could say or Mary's father or anyone else for that matter. Ezekiel 37, 24, my servant David shall be king over them and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. Ezekiel wrote this 430 years after David died. Clearly, he's not talking about David, right? He's talking about the offspring. This is the Christ. This is the Messiah. This is the chosen one. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. 
My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. He will be king and shepherd, prince and servant of the Most High God, and he will reign forever. He was going to be much more than a regular man. But without question, he was going to be a man. So why did God have to become a man? Well, what does the scripture say? 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. We know Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? Christ is the title of Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed one, the one he was going to send to solve this world's brokenness, to bring man and God back together. One mediator, the entire human race, is at war with God. All of us, some of you are still at war with God. Christians, you used to be. Mankind at odds with God. God, daily, He is angry with the wicked every day, the psalmist says. There is beef. There is conflict. There is strife. There is war. There is enmity. It's not peace. And how are we as human beings going to come to God and get peace? What are we going to offer Him? What are we going to offer to take His frown away? There's nothing we could do. We need a mediator. If we were to try to uh, let God come to us, what would happen? We, we see it in Exodus 19, 11. Moses said, or rather the Lord, be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. Not even the true omnipresent one coming down, just his hindquarters, right? <laughs> just just his, his backward parts. Just the, have you ever sprayed on cologne and then you walk out of the room and someone walks in, it's like, oh, it smells like cologne. It's not the actual cologne, it's just like the uh, aroma after effect. That's what we're talking about. That is enough to descend upon the mountain and God is so holy, he said, tell everyone to stay back. Because if they even touch the mountain, they are to die. That's what would happen if God came to us in our sinful state. And can you go to God? Can you approach God? What, the Bible says that God dwells in unapproachable light. The Bible says uh, in Psalm 76, but you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when your anger is roused? We can't stand before God. And if God comes to us in our sinful state, we will be consumed a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. An unquenchable fire. So what do we need? What do you need? You need a mediator. You need someone who can grab the hand of the Lord and grab the hand of you and bring the two together in peace. And you see the outstretched arms of our Lord on the cross. And that's exactly what He was doing there. There was only one man, one time a year, who was allowed to enter into the presence of God, and that was the high priest. And if he wasn't thinking right or acting right or he did anything wrong, they used to tie a rope around his leg and have bells on him in case God killed him. And they'd drag him out of there because they weren't going to go in there and get him. 
to approach God was a terrifying thing. So what does God do? He becomes man. He sends His Son to take on flesh to be our mediator so that you can come to the God who made you without being consumed, so that God can commune with you without you being destroyed. He had to come in flesh. No angel could accomplish that. Angels, on the last day, what's going to happen to them? The fallen angel, they will be thrown into the lake of fire along with death and hell itself. No man could accomplish that. The high priest himself had to make offerings for his own sins. No, we needed someone who was truly man, but was much more. We needed the God-man. As Anselm put it, why did God become man? Because man owed the debt, but only God could pay it. And so, to be able both to pay the debt and to be the owner of the debt... God had to become man. What was that debt? What was Adam told? On the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. What is said in Ezekiel 18? All souls are mine, says the Lord, and the soul who sins shall die. The wages of sin is death. What's the debt you owe to God? Death. And not just eyes closed having a funeral. Eternal death. Eternal destruction. That is what is owed. And that is more than you or I could ever pay. People think that they can pay their sin debt. Maybe you're here and you're thinking, yeah, I know I have sins against God, but I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to do good works. I'm going to feed the poor. I'm going to pray. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to be nice. I'm going to pay my taxes. I'm, I'm, I'm going to get married. I'm not going to be a fornicator. I'm going, to, I'm going to teach my children. I'm going to be a hard worker. Good works. I'm going to go be a missionary. I'll be a pastor. Good works. And I'm going to do these good works. And maybe what will happen is, like a scale, my good works will outweigh my bad. God will see it and he'll pardon me. Is that how you think? Is that your plan for the day of judgment? That won't work. One, God only accepts perfection. You therefore must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Two, what do you do? Even if you could do that, even if from today forward you could do nothing but good works that actually counted, even though, what does Isaiah say? Your righteous deeds are as a filthy garment. And I'll spare you what that means. Ask your parents. A polluted, filthy garment. Even if you could do good works, what do you do with all the sins you've done? How are you going to erase that? How are you going to get rid of that? One sin Adam committed, the curse fell. One sin is worthy of an eternity in hell. How many sins have you committed? How many eternities in hell do you have waiting for you by trying to pay your own debt? You see, you cannot erase the wrath and you cannot earn righteousness because you're not perfect. You need a mediator. You need someone who can 
obey on your behalf and suffer in your place. This is why Jesus came in the flesh. This is why the son was descended from David. He took on flesh. He had to. Why? Well, what does the Bible say? Always the question. Leviticus 17, 11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Hmm. It takes blood to atone for sin. What does Hebrews 9, 19 say? Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Death is the debt. Blood is the payment for sin, but your blood won't pay for your sins. That's why hell is eternal, because it takes an eternity to pay what you owe. You'll never pay it off. And since you cannot pay the price yourself, God, before the foundation of the world, made a plan to pay that debt for you. But I have a question for you. Can God bleed? We talked about the life is in the blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. But can God bleed? Uh, can, can God be wounded? Can God die? Does God have a body like men? No, 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 right? So again, God had to take on flesh. We're talking about Jesus of Nazareth. Which means this, there was a time when Jesus did not exist. Jesus was born. Jesus came into being around 2,000 years ago. He was born just like you and me. He grew in stature and wisdom, which means he didn't have the stature before. He didn't have the wisdom before. He grew in favor with God and man. He was a real man. Look, I love Superman, my favorite superhero of all time. Superman pretends to be weak. He pretends to be, you know, fragile and clumsy. But the truth of the matter is, it's all a show. And sometimes people think of Jesus like that. Like... He wasn't really hungry. He wasn't really tired. He wasn't really sleepy. He wasn't really thirsty. He was just putting on a show. No, Jesus of Nazareth, who in the fullness of time was born of a woman in the likeness of sinful flesh, truly was hungry. He was a man in every way, yet without sin. Jesus... The man had a beginning, but the son did not have a beginning. Jesus was born. The son was never born. What does Isaiah 9 say? Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is what? Given. The child is born. The son is given. Jesus of Nazareth had a beginning. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, has no beginning. He has existed from eternity past. Think about that. Second person of the Trinity 
enters this world, takes on human flesh to die for you, to obey for you. Do you struggle with pride? Of course you do. We all do. Here's a help. It's the greatest help I know for any dealings with pride, any battles with pride. Here is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, worshipped by angels, cherubim, seraphim, holy, holy, holy unto the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. He descends into this world surrounded by sin. Everywhere He looks, what does He see? Sin, sin, sin. Some of you know what it is to be in a place that is foul and it stinks. You've been in a porta potty Imagine if that's where you had to live. Spend 33 years of your life in the filth of that type of environment. That's nothing compared to the Son of God in all perfection, His purity, coming into this world. Everything is stained by sin. Everyone is selfish. Everything around Him screams, destroy this place. He comes into this world humbly. Look at His life. Born of a virgin around animals. He grew up poor, owned nothing. He didn't even have a place to lay his head. He washed his feet. Behold him. Who are we to think that's beneath me? How dare somebody talk to me this way when the Son of God comes into this world, takes on flesh, surrounded by the most filthy evil, wickedness all around, and he doesn't come in here with, with gloves. He, he touches people. Like our brother Casey said, he walks up to the blind man, he puts his hand on him. Here's a leper. He touches the leper. He sits with the tax collector. He looks in the face of people who were ignored. He loved people. He came in the flesh. Jesus came from the line of David, but may I say to you, he is the better David. Uh, David protected his father's sheep from the lion and the bear. But Christ is the good shepherd who protects his father's flock from devils and sin in the world. David defeated Goliath when no one else could. Even the king, Christ comes, defeats Satan and sin temptation because none of us could. David was able to free Saul from his demons by playing his harp strings. And this woman with the issue of blood had her illness healed completely by touching the strings of his garment. David defeated the enemies of God, but they always came back. Philistines just kept coming back. But Christ, He conquered all of the enemies, and they will never return. David ruled over Israel with justice and mercy for 40 years, and then he died. And wicked kings came after him. Christ, the King of all kings, rules over the universe by his sovereign grace and eternal power, and no one will ever take him from that throne. Christ is not only the son of David, but he's the better David in every way. 
In 1 Samuel 22, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And listen to this. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about hundred men the hurting the broken the people who were indebted they said we're going to David why because he's a good king he's righteous he 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 rules but he doesn't rule with an iron fist he rules with mercy he is kind he's reasonable we can go to him and we can get protection from our physical enemies and if we're hungry and we have need we can go to him and we'll be fed they gather themselves to David Christ is the better David. And what does he say? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. They gathered to David, but David died. You gathered to Christ. Christ lives evermore and he will give you rest not temporary shelter not temporary help not temporary provision but eternal eternal are you tired of your sins are you tired of messing up are you tired of the failures are you tired of those this the the emptiness of life and the broken promises that sin continually says to you if you do me it'll be worth it if you do this it'll satisfy you and what do you find yourself with a full of sand. You eat, you eat, you eat and become hungrier. It never satisfies. It never gives you what it promises. And you're a slave to your anger. You're a slave to your lust. You're a slave to your idolatry. A slave to your pride. You're trying to get out by your own hands. You find yourself with no help. You're sinking deeper and deeper into darkness. What do you do? You run to the one who said, come to me and I will give you rest. I will satisfy you. I am the bread. You eat of me you will never hunger. I am the water. You drink me, you'll never thirst again. I am the good shepherd and I protect the sheep. Come to him. He's a better David. Trust in him. But you know what else? He's also the greater warrior. It was said of David that he could not build a house for the Lord. Why? Anybody remember? Because he was a man of what? War. Man of blood. He wanted to build a temple for the Lord. He said, no, nah, you're not going to do it. Your son's going to do it. You got blood on your hands, boy. Like, Lord, didn't you send me in the battle to do it? Hey, be what it is. Amen. Well, what of the son of David? He is the temple. He said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again. He is the temple. He is the showbread. He is the lampstand and the light on it. He is the altar of incense and the prayers that continually go up. He is the Holy of Holies. He is the Ark of the Covenant. He is the temple itself. But not only that, he is the greater warrior. What does it say in Revelation 19? As for being a man of blood, Revelation 19, 11, this is for you if you don't know him. If you're here, I'm not talking about if people think you know him, if you have a claim to it, it no. If you don't know him, If you have doubts about the day of judgment, if you died today, would you go to be with him? Listen, as for being a man of blood, then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. 
The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in what? Blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Not only is he the temple, but he is a man of blood in many ways. In fact, his robes are stained with the blood of his enemies. Will any of that blood on his robe be yours? See, now is the time where the son of David offers peace. Now is the time where the son of David offers mercy. Now was the time where the son of David says, come, come to me, come to me and I'll give you rest. But if you wait, if you delay, then the time is coming when the son of David will come with his armies and he will tread, stomp, crush his enemies like grapes in a wine press. And you don't want to be on that side of the war. Do you know him? Do you know the Christ? Do you know the Son? Do you know Jesus? Today he offers you forgiveness and mercy. Well, I suppose we will pick this up next time regarding how he was declared to be the Son of God in power. Today I just want you to meditate on the humanity of Christ and what that means. Let me read something to you from Desiring God, which was extremely helpful regarding His humanity. Because Jesus is man, He has experienced the same things that we do. Because He is man, He can identify with us more intimately. Because He is man, He can come to our aid as our sympathetic high priest when we reach the limits of our human weaknesses. That's good. You are struggling. You're tired. Jesus knows what it was to be tired. See, God never sleeps or slumbers. But because the Son of God took on flesh, He knows what it is to be tired. He knows what it is to be overworked. He knows what it is for people to be demanding of him. Think of the crowds and they all wanted his time. They all needed something from him. You can go to him with your exhaustion. You can go to him with your tiredness. You can go to him with your schedule. He knows. He's a sympathetic high priest. He knows what it is to be tempted. God doesn't know what it is to be tempted. Who can tempt God? But God became man so that he could enter into our world and know and be sympathetic. He knows what it is to be tempted. He knows what it is to be hungry. He knows what it is to be thirsty. He knows what it is to be betrayed, to be mocked, to be laughed at, to be persecuted, to be ridiculed. You can take him your pain. You can take him your suffering. Singles. He knows what it is to be single when others are married. He knows what it is to be childless 
when others are playing with theirs, He is able to enter into your pain. He knows. Brothers and sisters, He knows. And if you're lost here, you can go to Him. Where are you going to find a Savior better than this? He knows. Because He is man, we can relate to Him. He is not far off and uninvolved. Because He is man, we cannot complain that God does not know what we are going through. He experienced it firsthand. God does know what you're going through. Jesus wept. He wept for the lost. He wept for the brokenness of this world. He grew angry when he saw the hardness of hearts. Jesus, the son of David, knows. If you haven't called upon him, there were two blind men. Everyone else could see. These two blind men couldn't. But they were the only ones who saw Son of David. Son of David, have mercy upon us. Do not pass us by. Son of David, have mercy. They couldn't see with the physical eyes, but they saw in him the Son of David. Will you call upon the Son of David this morning that he may open your spiritual blind eyes? We pray you would. Father, thank you. Thank you seems so small for what you've done. You sent your Son to become flesh for us. We who sin against you day after day. We who deserve your judgment and your wrath. And what do you do? How do you respond to our rebellion as human beings? You send your son in the likeness of sinful flesh to obey the law in our place. Who takes the wrath of you, bleeds, is pierced, is wounded, is beaten, is whipped for us. Father, please, let this move us. Let this change us. Let this transform us. May we worship Christ for His humanity as well as His deity.